The rest of you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38. We're continuing the story of Joseph this morning. And uh, we're looking this morning at suffering. Um, and I, I approached that topic from, uh, with a little bit of just, uh, in a sense, honesty, because I know that as I address suffering, all of you have uh, different things that you have suffered in the past, different things that, um, that I don't, I'm not necessarily aware of. And, and, and we all struggle with what do we do with suffering in our lives? How do we... Uh, how do we answer the questions that suffering brings up? And maybe you're wrestling with those questions right now, and I hope that this sermon helps you to think clearly and biblically about the questions that that, that suffering uh, brings to mind, even as I realize that maybe I'm not going to say everything that could be said about suffering. And so um, I keep that in mind. And if you have questions after the sermon, I'd be glad to talk to you about this because I realize that there's a lot of questions that I'm not going to answer this morning. But I'd like to, as we, before we get into Genesis 38, I'd like to maybe address three different, uh, if you will, unbiblical approaches to suffering. Am I almost out of battery here? Okay. We are going to uh, briefly switch this off. And we're good. There we go. Just like that. Now you see what they do behind the scenes for me. Uh, so three, just, I'd like to talk about three different approaches to suffering that, uh, that are overall unbiblical. That is, they, they, uh, they don't address suffering from a biblical standpoint. And, but we're tempted to use them because they seem like they give us some, some hope or some respite in suffering. The first maybe way of handling it is to say, I can handle anything that comes my way, right? I'm reminded of the poem Invictus, right? Have you heard the poem Invictus? It starts out this way, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It goes on in the second, uh, the third phrase, it says, and beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It ends, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul, right? Basically, he's saying, I'll handle anything that comes my way without fear uh, because I'm unconquerable. And in some ways, we all want to feel that way when we think about suffering, that we can just handle anything that comes our way. And yet, if you've lived long enough in life, you realize that there are things that come your way that you uh, may be able to handle, but you just don't want to. <laughs> like you wish you wouldn't have to handle, whether it's the loss of family members or uh, uh, sickness or, or some uh, situation that is just simply, uh, uh, in a sense, unendurable in your mind. And, and so suffering uh, is not, uh, being unconquerable and uh, invincible is not always the way we want to handle suffering, nor is it the way biblically that we handle suffering. Another way that uh, the world seeks to uh, handle suffering is uh, through um, 
It's a term that's come into popular usage recently. It's called intersectionality. It's, it's a concept that is, is maybe hard to understand. Um, it, it's it's a more of an academic approach to suffering, and yet it tries to handle all types of suffering. And so I'll, I'll use their own words. I found this on the Center for Intersectional Justice. It says, the concept of intersectionality describes the ways in which systems of inequality based on gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability, class, and other forms of discrimination intersect to create unique dynamics and effects. So it's basically saying all these different ways that you can view yourself also have different forms of suffering that are involved with those ways. And, and, and it, it arose out of a court case where um, some black women were uh, suing IBM, I believe, for, uh, for job discrimination, for, you know, firing them for, for, and, and causing them to lose their jobs. And they were suing over that. And they were saying, it's not just that we're, we, we believe that we're being discriminated, discriminated against, not just because we're women, because IBM was hiring women, nor just because we're black, because they're also hiring blacks, but also because we're black women. And so uh, the case at the time got thrown out because the judge was like, you're creating all these different categories. and You can create categories ad infinitum, so to speak. Is that helpful? Um, but biblically speaking, there's a, there's a sense in which this is true, that, that we recognize that there's multiple forms of, of suffering that are involved, and that oftentimes the things that come together actually create more suffering in that sense. But the, the desire for intersectionality is that sense of we should recognize all forms of suffering and we should seek to address all forms of suffering. And, and the idea of recognizing all forms of suffering is, is biblical. We, we can we can recognize that suffering comes through many different forms. But as uh, Denny, Dennis Burke uh, uh, commented in his, in his, um, on his website, uh, dennyburke.com, he says, it has been often observed that intersectionality creates a kind of oppression Olympics amongst those who hold the theory. Ironically, within college campus subculture, which is what we often live in, one's moral authority can be enhanced by intersecting identities of oppression. That is basically the more you've been oppressed and various identities that you have, the more you're actually morally superior to those around you. This kind of social dynamic incentivizes grievances based on identity. In that way, it entrenches social divisions rather than healing them. So what the story behind intersectionality would say this. It would say suffering is multiplied by the various categories of identity that you, you, you might be involved in. And, you, and the story goes, if you can identify those, those categories and you can use your voice in those categories, you can actually to help and, and, and benefit others and fight for the rights of others. It is, it, however, it assumes that identities are fixed, that things that you can't change, that... Um, I ran across a story once about uh, uh, a student who was approaching a professor who was black, and they were saying, how do you deal with, with the oppression that you feel because you're black? And the professor said, well, I don't identify as black. And, and this, the student's like, what? What does that even mean? And, and the point is, is that he was trying to say, I, I'm not trying to identify with the suffering that you're trying to identify me with. Because... The, it assumes that these identities are fixed, that they can't change, that they involve suffering regardless, and is that, that is not the experience of everyone. And so it actually creates more division. 
and therefore more suffering because ultimately what it's saying is if you can identify all the suffering that you've experienced and get your voice on, heard on those things, it's all about depending on yourself in the midst of suffering. If you could just identify all those ways and say something about all those things, you can actually help yourself out of the suffering that you're in. There's a third way, and we're going to get back into that a little bit more later on. There's a third way I think that's an unbiblical maybe story on suffering. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, God won't give you more than you can handle. And while it's coming out of a biblical perspective on temptation in 1 Corinthians 10, it's also, it's not a good story when applied to suffering. Why? Because in a sense, it minimizes suffering. Rather than maximizing suffering by noticing all the suffering that you could be experiencing, it minimizes suffering because it says, you, it, God won't give you more than you can handle. <laughs> well, what if you feel like it's more? How does that, where, when you're in that boat, how does this phrase help you at all? Besides focusing on you and that you then become the problem because if you can't, you don't think that you can handle the suffering you're in, then obviously you're not trusting God enough with your suffering. Suffering should be alleviated through simply believing that you're okay, I can handle this because God says I can. It assumes you have an identity that is, again, fixed just like intersectionality. It actually sets you to depend upon yourself just like intersectionality too because you feel you should be able to handle it and therefore isolates us when we feel we can't. So again, suffering is often isolating. It feels like it, we, we feel isolated when we're going through suffering. It feels like we have no resources when we're going through suffering. And what we're going to see as we go through Genesis 38 and 39 is that biblically, suffering is not something that is solely done to us. That is something that externally happens to us. Nor is it something that we do to ourselves. That is, we cause it ourselves. But sometimes we do cause our own suffering, at least part of it. Nor is suffering simply random, that is, it just happens to us and we just got to deal with it. Nor is suffering something that gives one moral superiority the more you suffer, because in some ways, again, arguing who who suffers more just seems like an unending pilgrimage of pride. But suffering, biblically, is used sovereignly by God to cause us to draw near to him and to seek him out. He wants us to, to, be, to be drawn to him. And there's two patterns that, that God uses. God doesn't use suffering for any one purpose. He has multiple purposes in the suffering that he causes us to go through. And we're going to look at two different patterns to suffering in Genesis 38 and 39 because I want you to see how God's grace is evident in both of these patterns and God is working in both of these patterns to cause us to rely upon him, relate to him more deeply, and to be able to bless people more freely. So let's look at Genesis 38 and 39 and look at suffering. And fortunately... Today, we get to look at someone else's suffering and not our own. (laughs) But in the process, I hope that as you see the suffering that's here, it can encourage you to realize that we have hope in suffering because of a God that enters into our suffering and walks with us in it. So let's look at pattern number one. And I phrase this, um, this, it's the 
Wow, did I not turn this on? That's what I didn't do. Um, Pattern one one is see the mercy of being led to repentance. See the mercy of being led to repentance. And especially you're going to see in this pattern that someone else's response to suffering, to similar suffering, surprises us into repentance. So let's look at this and see Genesis 38, 1 through 5 to start off with. It says, it happened at that time. What's the time he's talking about? He's reminding us we're still in the story. Joseph has been sold into slavery at Judah's uh, uh, idea. It was his idea. He initiated it. And at his behest, he sold his brother into slavery. And after that, it says, Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hiram. So he left his brothers, he left his family, the emphasis is on his brothers, not his family, and he becomes best friends with this guy named Hira, okay? So I, I, I don't need my brothers anymore, I'll take Hira, the Adulamite, which is basically saying I'm going to leave the, my, the, you know, the, the, tr- the family of blessing that I'm in and, and form another family, right? He says, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. He called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. So what I want you to see in this first paragraph, again, is that Judah has decided to leave his family, right? He has decided, uh, probably somewhat driven by guilt, right? And maybe the, uh, guilt over, you know, this, this, this continuing division of the family. It, it didn't solve the problem of now the father loving the brothers. He, the father, Jacob, still just mourning for Joseph. They're still, this, the brothers still, in a sense, hate each other. They're, now they got something else to hate each other about because they keep accusing one another. We'll see that later on. Every time something goes wrong, well, this is all because we sold Joseph into slavery. And Judah's like, and now, of course, they get now have a new focal point of hatred. Judah, you, you gave us that idea. How stupid were you? You know what I mean? And Judah leaves his brothers. Not only, so he's, not only is he probably doing it because of guilt, he's probably doing it because he's just cynical. But like this family that's supposed to be the source of God's blessing and this, this, the promises of God are supposed to come through this family and this family is messed up. Like why should, why should we, this, this is crazy. Why should we believe this? Why should we hope in this, that this family is where it's at? And so Judah leaves his family He's cynical about the, the, the family's covenant with God and its blessings. And he starts a family on his own outside of the covenant blessings. And because of that, it says that Judah's sons were wicked. Judah, Judah's, even though he, he's starting off a family, he, he, his sons get old enough and he wants to have grandchildren. And so he finds a wife for his oldest son. That, but it says that his oldest son is wicked and his, and his God kills his own oldest son because of his wickedness. Don't say what he was doing. It just says that he did that. But then we, we see in some ways uh, that Judah's sins are passed on to his sons because the second son doesn't care about, about his older brother. He doesn't care about what's, the, the, the lineage of his older brother. And he's like, I don't care about him. And so he's not willing to produce a, an heir for his older brother. And God's like, okay. I guess, I guess I have to kill you too. And Judah's second son dies. 
And the, the wife of the first son who had been married to the second son is now waiting for the third son to get old enough. And Judah is afraid because he's like, well, maybe it's her fault. Maybe that's why they're dying. And he's, he's just, he's not sure. He wants grandchildren. And, and, uh, and she's waiting and she sees that she's not getting married to the youngest son now that he's old enough to be married. And so she, she tricks Judah into impregnating her and getting her pregnant. And so in that process... Uh, of course, it becomes known that she's pregnant. In Genesis 20, 38, 24, it says, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. I mean, that's a pretty harsh judgment. But he's, uh, when you're living under law, you are harsh. And he's, he's not willing to, it just it takes care of the problem for him. You know, she was the problem, now I get rid of her and I start over again, is what he's probably thinking. As she was bringing her out, she sent word to her father, by the man to whom these belong, because when she tricked him, she took some things of Judah and kept them for herself. By, by the men, man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose they are, the signet and the cord and the staff. These are three things she had asked Judah for. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since she did not give her son, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. What's interesting here is that, that phrase, she is more righteous than I. Because it's surprising in the story, right? J- Judah, why, why do you care about righteousness? <laughs> You, you've sold your brother into slavery. You don't care about your family anymore. Um, you're, you're just living your life, doing your thing. And here's this girl who um, is a problem in your family. You're kind of isolating her. You're, you're ignoring her. And uh, why do you care? I thought about that phrase. What, is it, what does it mean that she's more righteous than he is? What's fascinating here is that Judah was upset about his family. He, 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 he knew that he had not been righteous in regards to his family. He had sold his brother into slavery. He had left his, his brothers. He had deceived his father. He had, in all practicality, he had murdered his brother. And here is Tamar. Tamar's lost two husbands. She's ignored by her father-in-law. She's, she's, in a sense, maligned by her father, father-in-law, saying she's probably the problem and, and not my sons. She, she has this broken relationship with her family, and yet Tamar chose to be loyal to her family, that is, her adopted family, the one she had married into, when Judah hadn't. You, 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 see, you see the surprise here, right? Tamar had every right to not be loyal to her family. Just like Judah would have said, I have every right not to be loyal to my family. And yet, Tamar chose to be loyal. And this sticks to Judah. This is something he can't get out of his head. And this actually is the, the start, in you, if you will, of Judah's repentance. Of Judah, of Judah realizing, you know what? God's plan for me, God's blessing for me is, is actually better than my plan for myself. 
And, and what's, again, in the midst of his suffering, because he was suffering, okay? I mean, who loves to have a father who picks favorites and says, you're not it? Who loves to have brothers that are always fighting with each other and blaming each other and blame shifting with each other and saying, it's your fault and not mine? I would, I would much rather choose higher than a family like that. <laughs> and yet, in the midst of that, here's this woman who surprises him toward repentance. And that starts his transformation. We see at the end here, in verse 27, it says, When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. That is Tamar's womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand and said, This one came out first. And he drew back his hand, but as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, that is breach. Therefore, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. Now, leaving aside all the details of, man, I would not have been, would have been Tamar and had had that birth. Uh, think about Judas thinking about this. This is, Judah's reminded of, of what happened with his father, Jacob and Esau, and the fact that, that God used even brothers who weren't, weren't the expected ones to accomplish his will and his blessing. And, and again, this, this doesn't miraculously turn Judah around, but it starts this process of bringing him to repentance. And one of the patterns here, therefore, is that God uses suffering to surprise us into repentance. And it's usually because someone else in similar suffering to ours chooses to trust God and to do something different than what we would have done. Now, we don't know in this particular case how much, the story doesn't comment, comment about how much Tamar was trusting God or if Tamar was doing the right thing. This is all, in a sense, outside of how God would do things. But the point is, is it surprises Judah, that someone would be loyal to a family when he wasn't loyal to his. And maybe you can think of times in your life where God has surprised you with the, with the response of someone else to suffering, and it made you realize that, that in your suffering, you should be going to God as well. I can think in my own life of one instance. It was when I was a kid, uh, I was, I don't know, I was probably 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. I can't remember the age exactly. Um, but I knew I, I, I should get baptized. I, I knew I should get baptized. I know I, I, was, I was trusting Christ, believed in Christ, and, uh, and I knew the next step for me was to be baptized. But, but to be baptized, um, at least the way I understood it was, I needed to walk down the aisle <laughs> Go up to Pastor Albert and say, I want to be baptized, and then go through that process, give a, a public testimony of my faith in Christ, and then I would get baptized. And that scared me. <laughs> I did not want to walk down the aisle. <laughs> I did not want to have to give my testimony in public. That seemed too, <laughs> too traumatizing. And uh, I was like, I don't want to do that. And so I was fighting doing it. And then I saw this girl go down the aisle who was younger than me. She went down. She talked to Pastor Albert. Pastor Albert says, Patrice wants to get baptized. And I was like, what? 
A girl who's younger than me is willing to do that? And I was like, I'm going down the aisle, <laughs> right? Now, that's a poor reason to get baptized. I'm not saying that's the reason why you should get baptized. It's because someone younger than you and as a girl gets baptized. I'm not saying that, right? What I'm saying was I knew what I needed to do, but I wasn't willing to do it. And someone else willing to do it surprised me and made me realize I need to do it regardless. And, and in, our, in our lives, God uses people in, in going through similar suffering to sometimes surprise us into realizing, this is dumb, what am I doing? There, there was the story of Dorothy Day. She's a, she was a, uh, a lady who was in the 20s. She was, uh, lived a, what you might call a bohemian lifestyle. She was all about fighting injustice and oppression but there was a story from her childhood that stuck in her head. She tells this story. She says, It was around 10 o'clock in the morning that I went up to my friend Catherine's to call her out to come and play. But there was no one on the porch or in the kitchen. The breakfast dishes had all been washed. And there, were, there, there was these long railroad apartments, these flats. So like room, 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 right? And so thinking the children must be in the, in the far room, I burst through and ran through the bedrooms back to that room. But in that far room, Mrs. Barrett was on her knees saying her prayers. She turned to tell me that Catherine and the other children had all gone to the store and then went on with her praying. She said, I felt a warm burst of love toward Mrs. Barrett that I have never forgotten, a feeling of gratitude and happiness that still warms my heart when I remember her. She says, all through my life, what she was doing remained with me. And though I became oppressed with the problem of poverty and injustice, though I groaned at the hideous sordidness of man's lot, though there were years when I clung to the philosophy of economic determination as an explanation for man's fate, still there were moments when in the midst of misery and class strife, life was shot through with glory. Mrs. Barrett, in her sordid little tenement flat, finished her breakfast dishes at 10 o'clock in the morning and got down on her knees and prayed to God. And that story stuck with her until she trusted in Christ. In the midst of suffering, this mom was just saying, I'm going to go pray. And for this woman who then grew up and was like, oh, we got to fight oppression and we got to solve in poverty and we got to fight injustice. What if we just prayed? Stuck with her and surprised her into repentance. And she actually wrote a poem to the opposite of Invictus. She wrote, Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. She ends it, I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. And to take us from in our suffering, saying, I've got to handle it on my own. I've got to work through it on my own. I've got to do what I, whatever it takes. I've got to run away from all my problems and all the things that are causing me suffering and do my own thing. In the midst of that, God still works to surprise us into realizing we need to turn back to him. And he uses the suffering in our lives to move us that direction. And that is, that is a merciful, wonderful thing to reflect on. To realize that in the midst of our suffering, especially when we're running from God in the midst of our suffering, 
he surprises us into repentance. That's one pattern in our lives as we think about suffering. The other pattern is in Genesis 39. So let's look at submitting to the challenge of humiliation when doing what's right, because this is, this is an ongoing pattern in Scripture that we find here in Genesis 39 as well. Notice what it says. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put, all, put him in charge of all that he had. From the, from the time that he made him overseer in his house over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and on field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, what's interesting here is uh, it emphasizes that that God was with Joseph in the midst of this, right? God God blessed everything Joseph was in charge of, and so his master Potiphar made him in charge of more and more and more things, because he realized, hey, everything's going great under him. And uh, can you imagine? I mean, wouldn't it be nice to have somebody that ran your life for you, and the only thing you had to do was be like, you know, McDonald's today, or, or Chick-fil-A, or maybe a homemade meal sandwich. Like, what do you want? That's all you got to choose today. That's, that's a hard decision for you. I mean, that'd be pretty nice, wouldn't it? And that's what Potiphar had, because, again, it says, emphasize that, that God was with Joseph in the midst of being a slave, but here we find that his handsomeness, he was also very handsome, but that handsomeness caused the problem, right? It's Genesis 39, verse 7 says, And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, and nor has he kept anything back from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now, just, just for a second, you realize the, the, the pressure that he's under, the, the temptation that he's facing. He's a young man. He's probably he's somewhere between 17 and probably 21, somewhere in there right? And this woman is pressuring him to sleep with her, and he is saying no. And why is he saying no? He says here, how can I do this great weakness and sin against God? He's like, I'm, I'm in a position. God has put me in this position. I'm, I'm in a good position overall. Why, why, would, I, why would I sin against God? You, you say, because you're a slave. You know what I mean? Like, like your brother sold you into slavery. Like, it, that's not something to get mad at God for. And he's like, no, God's still God. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to depend on him. I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to follow him regardless. So note his consistent refusal, even in the midst of suffering. But she doesn't give up. One day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment and saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. 
And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said, See, he, he that is her husband, has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to, to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came to me to laugh at me, but as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whether, whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of that prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So here's the pattern he, he, he's doing the right thing. He's going about things the right way. He's, he's, he's trusting God in the midst of his suffering. And what happens? He gets thrown in prison. He gets humbled for doing the right thing. And, and you see this pattern in, in Scripture in multiple places, but you see it especially with Jesus, right? That, that when, when Jesus did the right thing, he suffered because of it. He was humiliated because of it. The Pharisees wanted to kill him, right? And some may say, well, you mean, Joseph, he probably could, he just could handle this kind of stuff. He, was, he could stoically take it and just obey God without any emotion at all, right? He really wasn't suffering because he doesn't say that he's suffering anywhere in this passage. He doesn't emphasize how he's suffering. But if you read further on in the story, it says this, before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. So these, his wife bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all of my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Here's Joseph really talking for himself for the first time. And what does he do? He names his two kids after his suffering. <laughs> Can you imagine doing that? Naming your kids after your suffering? Now he's including God in the picture, but, but don't miss the fact that he's also saying, I've suffered here. This, this land of affliction is where I live. This, this hardship in this, my father's house and everything that went on with my father's house, this is what I, I, I'm able to forget finally when he had his kids about everything that's happened to him. So Joseph is not just stoically going through this and being like, well, I trust God. I don't worry about the fact that I'm a slave. I don't view that as a hardship. No, that's not the way Joseph viewed that at all. He viewed this as really suffering. So the question is, why is this pattern in Scripture? What is going on that we, that we would say, when you do the right thing, you are going to suffer sometimes? Well, the Bible answers that question for us by going to Jesus. And Hebrews chapter 2 gives us a perfect answer to this question. It says, in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he, that is God, 
for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. There is something here that God, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying that, that, that suffering perfects. It brings to perfection. And you say, well, Jesus is, is perfect already. What do you mean that he's becoming, he's being brought to perfection? A little bit further on it says, Hebrews 2.18 says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's saying there's a, there's a platform that comes into place when you go through the right thing and even suffer because of it that allows you to bless those who need to be blessed around you. Hebrews 5 says the same thing. Although he was the son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And Hebrews 4, 14 gives us the reason. Since then we have a great priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying that Jesus didn't become more perfect because of his suffering. It, it, it completed his ability to do something that he could not have done before, which is rescue, rescue people from sin and death by suffering in their place, by, by coming and, 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 and taking their, their sin for himself. But not only that, but to also be the kind of Savior that when we are suffering, he's not like, well, I've never experienced that, but I'll, I'll rescue you anyway. But he's the kind of Savior that says, I've experienced suffering too. I'm compassionate toward those who are going through suffering. I will be with you. I will reach out to you. I will walk with you through this. I want to go back to Hebrews 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bring many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. But then he goes on to say, for he who sanctifies, that is Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that is us, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. In scripture, there are no mistakes. What's the problem in Genesis 38 and 39? The family is no longer a family. They're fractured. They hate each other. They're willing to sell each other. They're not brothers. And yet God uses the suffering of both Judah and Joseph to bring the family back to being a family again. It's the start of the process. And sometimes we look at suffering and we say, why me? We say, why now? We say, why this? And we don't realize that God is doing something more you say, but God, I was, doing, I was trying to do the right thing. I was trying to obey the, and, and, and do everything you wanted me to do. And now you put this in my life. But God is doing more. God is doing more. 
than just getting sin out of our lives. He's creating a family. And he knows that this family is fractured. This family is divided. This family hates each other. And yet he is calling this family to himself and saying, let's be brothers together. And he makes the one who is, who is able to do that the one who suffers, even when righteous. So he can say, as Joseph said, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good. And this is why I talked about where God's story and your story intersects. Because a lot of times we don't like to include our suffering in our story. But our story matters because of our suffering. God uses our suffering. He, he transforms us through our suffering, not just in making us trust him more, but he allows us to be able to bless people and to be sympathetic with people that we could not have been before. And as we, as we come into and we realize that God is doing this in the midst of our story, it, it brings us in and it says, okay, then God is in the midst of my pain. He's in the midst of my sorrow. He's in the midst of my loneliness. He's in the midst of my isolation. God doesn't leave me when I'm suffering. He's actually more with me when I'm suffering. And that's why the basic point of both of these stories is that we trust God's steadfast love in the midst of suffering. We need to see God's steadfast love. The word in Hebrew is chesed. It's this love, this covenant love that keeps its promises in the midst of people not keeping their promises. God still keeping his promises and acting in love toward us in the midst of it. Notice the patterns between the two stories. Genesis 38 and 39 both are separated from their families for different reasons, but they're both isolated from their families. Both lose an article of clothing during sexual temptation. Both have children that remind them of God's grace. And both are used ultimately to unite their family, as we'll see later on. In, in, bo in both of these stories, you see God's grace working, in a sense, behind the scenes. It's not totally obvious, although <laughs> even Potiphar can see it. And in the midst of our suffering, we need to realize that God's grace does not leave us, but in fact is with us. And we have a choice then. We could either run from God's grace and choose to sin and, and run from his, his mercy in our lives, or we can choose to trust God in his steadfast love. Now, the symbolism here especially is about an article of clothing, which in the pattern of Joseph's story is that sense, sense of honor, right? Joseph got the robe of many colors. It was his honor. It was who he was. And here, Judah's willing to give away his honor in order to get what he wants. And sin would lead you to do that. But here, here Joseph's willing to give away, in a sense, his man-made honor to run from the situation and still trust God because he loses his honor in the process. He's accused of basically rape, right? Even though it's not true. But faith leads you to trust God and his steadfast love rather than man-given honor, man, rather than saying, I've got to keep protect to myself all the time. I can trust God and follow him. And I cannot say, I cannot leave this story without at least reminding us that we need to flee sexual temptation that it would rob, of, rob us of 
the honor God has given us. It would destroy our lives if we give in to it. And instead, we need to trust God and his steadfast love, especially when we're feeling threatened, when we feel like we're going to lose, that our story is not headed in the right direction. And that's especially a time when we can give in to sexual temptation. But we need to realize that God's steadfast love never fails. It never gives up. It is always with us. And of course, you could ask yourself the question, well, these two patterns of uh, patterns, like, okay, when you're sinning, God's mercy is going to surprise you into repentance. And this other story of even when you're doing the right thing, God is going to use suffering to allow you to bless others ultimately. What if I'm not sure which one I'm in? The point is not so much as always to figure out which pattern you're in. It's to realize that God's grace is in the pattern. (laughs) It's there. It's with you. Hebrews 12 goes on to say, consider him who endured from sinners, that is Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises the son, every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have, you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, that is our human fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For, all, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't get caught up so much in, okay, what is God doing with my suffering? Just realize that that when you're suffering, God is using it because you're his son, you're his daughter. He's working in you. He's not giving up on you, and that's why you're suffering. It's because he's doing something in you, more than you can imagine, more more than you can dream. He's doing something because you can't dream enough, in a sense, of what he can do in and through you. And so as you're suffering, as you're going through different, suffer, different types of suffering, realize that you're, you're his child and that you can remember that he is doing something good in you. And therefore, rather than running from our suffering, we can, he says here, strengthen our weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, do the next right thing, not because you must, but because you can trust the Father who loves you. So the question is, will you do that? Will you trust the God of steadfast love who keeps his promises to you? 2 Corinthians 1 puts it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, 
So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. No one likes suffering. And I don't care what suffering you're going through. The Bible, in a sense, doesn't try to say, well, this suffering is worse than some, some other suffering. It doesn't try to compare suffering or, or rate suffering. Suffering is suffering. And as Christians, we should interact with suffering in that way, not trying to be like, well, you know, you're suffering, you know, you know you're five, your suffering's minor. <laughs> and now, now that I'm 45, my suffering's major, you know. No. When you're five, your suffering's major. When you're 45, your suffering's major. It's just different types of suffering, right? And instead, we should look to God, point others to God, and use the comfort that we have received from God to help point others to God. That's the whole point. Joseph is being given an opportunity to one day stand in front of his brothers and say, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good. Let's turn and look at God. Let's see his grace. Let's see his mercy in our lives. Let's see that he keeps his promises when we don't to each other. And that's what we need in life. We don't need all of our suffering to go away. We need to walk through life knowing that he is with us, right? That's what we ultimately need. That's why you might say... Psalm 23, right, is, is probably the greatest thing we could look to, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I don't need anything else but that. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because he is with me. His rod and staff comfort me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because my Savior suffered, and he welcomes me as his brother in my suffering. And I can look to him and I can trust him because he knows what it's like to suffer and he's not going to leave me in the midst of it. So will you trust that? Will you cling to that? Will you walk in that? This is the, the God we have. The God of all comfort who comforts us in the midst of our sufferings with the comforts that we can receive from him. Look to him. Trust in his unfailing love. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your comfort. We see the suffering of Joseph and Judah, one definitely more self-imposed than the other. And yet in both we see your mercy. In both we see your grace. In both we realize that you don't leave us or forsake us that you're working something out in the midst of things that is greater than we can even imagine, and to be, in a sense, welcomed into your family and to be called brothers and sisters of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered with us. So, Lord, as we go through suffering, and we all do, help us to look to you and help us to tell of the, the, 
tell our story in such a way that we are seeing, helping to see others, helping others to see your great comfort in Jesus Christ. In your son's name we pray.